The Daily Rios, episode 268, for Thursday, December 12th, 2013. Let's not dawdle any further. Time to meet the children. Oh. Children! Oh. Lisa! Friedrich! Louisa! Kurt! Gretel! And Ivy! How much am I kicking myself for not doing a podcast commentary while NBC did their live event of Sound of Music last Thursday? I was having so much fun on Facebook and Twitter and texting friends and my girlfriend. I just got so caught up in it that I didn't even think. I didn't even think to just sit there and record it as I was doing all this stuff. But, uh, you know, I missed out. They are actually re-airing it. So maybe if it's at a time when I can sit there and watch it again. Not that I necessarily want to watch it again, mind you. Um, but maybe I, can, maybe I can do that. Maybe I can... <laughs> it's three hours. I mean, God, you know, it has a lot of commercials, but it was still three hours. That would be a long time. But I did get a couple requests from people saying, you know what did I think of it, and I wanted to talk about it here for a little bit, but really the fun of it was commenting on the actual event as it was going on. That really was the fun of it for me. As a theater person, you know, as someone who um, knew that I was going to watch it and, and you know, really try to experience it with everyone else, you know, that that was what the fun was, you know, watching it with everyone else on Facebook and Twitter, etc. I think I even mentioned I was going to put all my Facebook comments and Twitter on my website. I might still do that. Uh, but, you know, what did I think of it? Overall, the production was really lovely to look at in terms of the sets and some of the costumes. It certainly pulled in the viewership. It may not have kept all of that viewership for the full three hours, Obviously, it got those numbers, number one, because it was a live event. Probably there was a good portion of viewership that just wanted to see it, to see if they were going to muck anything up. Uh, they were certainly pushing the lead Carrie Underwood, and I, I have to imagine that the large numbers uh, you know, were pulled in because of her. Um, that's a no-brainer. And, you know, one thing I, I, I sort of can say about these numbers, you know, those numbers weren't necessarily... Uh, because of the content, right? Nobody, when you're first watching it, if those numbers were there from the get-go, they were the they were there from the get-go because of the promotion. Nobody knew what we were actually going to see. So, um, you know, you can't just automatically say, well, Sound of Music had 18 million viewers or whatever the hell the numbers numbers were. So it so it had to be good. Well, no, it got those viewerships because of everything that happened before it actually started. And then it's a question of, you know, did it keep its viewership once it was actually there? And of course, once it was actually being presented, a lot of the comments were, you know, hey, this is kind of good, but wow, Carrie Underwood, uh, very, very amateurish in her acting. Um, and that is something that is very true for those of us who know and live and breathe theater and, and do theater. Her acting was not up to par 
with the rest of her cast. In fact, that was something my students pointed out, which I thought was an interesting observation. And uh, they said, when you do this sort of casting, which I like to call stunt casting, I call it stunt casting, where you put in an actor or someone of name into a show because you're hoping it'll draw people in, and uh, regardless of their experience or of their talents, um, my students went on to say, when you put someone in who maybe is not as experienced as the people around them, and, and you surround that person with very experienced actors and very experienced singers and theater people, of course she's going to come off looking not as good as everybody else. And uh, that's truly a fault of the directors and the producers, but they had to do that because they had to, they were, who they didn't know if this was going to get the viewership. They didn't know. They, they had to bring somebody in. So they said, well, let's pick Carrie Underwood because of her talent and because of, you know, maybe she'll bring in viewerships in the South or the Midwest or whatever. Um, they probably could have picked a smarter choice, someone with a little bit more acting skills, but they didn't. They went with Carrie Underwood. And uh, that's the price you pay then when suddenly reviewers and people watching it notice that she's very amateurish in her acting. And suddenly, you know, that's the price you pay for that kind of stunt casting. Now, uh, so that was a, a, an inter interesting observation that the students had. I feel the same way. I thought her acting was not wonderful at all. Vocally, while she may have the chops and she's certainly loud, she was a very loud Maria. The other part of being a polished performer is knowing how to have different vari vocal variation, have dynamics, have highs and lows, have some nuance to your voice. Don't just stand there and park and bark, which is which which means you just park and bark is you just stand there and sing loud. You can't you can't do that. First of all, you can't do that on TV because it comes through the speakers awfully. Um, there's no variation. There's no highs and lows. It gets overmodulated. She was just loud. And it wasn't the whole way through, but um, she could have had a lot more color in her voice than she actually did. So vocally, fine. Yes, she's a, she's a singer and she can sing. But she it sounded like she was singing for a concert more than she was singing for a theater piece. So that was something else that was, um, you know, the, the, the lack of experience didn't help her on that. None of this is to say that if you enjoyed her performance, hey, more power to you. It doesn't automatically mean, though, that her performance was stunning. You just enjoyed what you saw, and maybe, I don't know, maybe you're not familiar with, maybe you don't have as much experience seeing theater. There could be that option. Or maybe you're so in love with Carrie Underwood that you can look past all the blemishes. Or maybe you do know theater and you just like that loud, boring, flat, monotone voice. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You can like it. Great. Like it all you want. Doesn't mean that it was good. And uh, there's certainly been reviews out there. Reviews, very honest reviews and very um, non-biased reviews. Reviews that gave her a chance that, you know, said she wasn't very good. She wasn't, you know, she was amateurish. It's not that she wasn't good. She was just amateurish. And, and that, you can't fault anybody for saying that because it's true. It's just true. I find it interesting some people who make excuses and, or who say that it was a risk that she took. And I sort of want to say, what risk did she really take? She's a performer. I mean, she was on American Idol. She, she's a, a singer. I have to imagine she's done concerts. 
that have lasted for an hour or two, you know, so she should have some kind of stamina. Um, you know, the only risk that she took was because it was made evident that she is an amateur actress. <laughs> she was given a vehicle that showcased, you know, how poor of an actress she actually is. It wasn't like the the entire thing flopped, right? A risk would have been to do the show and no one watch, right? Now, that's a risk. But obviously, people watched and they watched for her because they wanted to see what she would do. And then once it started running, well, you know, we all went, eh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll watch it for everything else, you know. So that's the producer's fault. That's her fault for not hiring a, an acting coach. That's the director's fault during rehearsals for not saying, um, maybe you shouldn't be speaking so modern when you're, the rest of your cast is not. Maybe you should, you know, emote a little bit here, Not don't have such a monotone voice. When some of the kids outshine your performance, that's bad, you know? So, again, the risk for doing it should not be because she's inexperienced. <laughs> the risk is, you know, she wasn't up for it. That's really the risk of it. The risk is coming out and looking bad. Well, guess what? She looked a little bad. So that's a weird comment that I never really understood. The risk. What risk? She's a performer. She should be used to it. And she wasn't. She was winded in that do re mi number. It's as if she's never done an, a, a concert. I mean, whatever. She was probably nervous. I, I don't blame her. So the rest of the cast, uh, you know, were, were they were kind of fun. And you could really see the true actor, theater actors in there. And uh, the costumes were lovely, and the choreography was a little ridiculous. It was way fast. In fact, a lot of the dialogue was way fast. Uh, you know, the other lead, Georg, he was speaking like he was in a, in a race, you know, and they probably were. They probably were racing between commercials, you know, and we have to get this much in during this section so that we can cut to a commercial. Okay, now we, we have to do this, and... There were some weird breaks here and there. In fact, the ending was truly weird. This is why I really need to do a podcast commentary on this, because we came back from a commercial break, they went up the mountain, boom, done, somebody sang, the nun sang, and then it was over. And then the credits rang, ran, ran by. You know, We came back for a commercial for very little of a, of a finish to the story, which was weird. And then there was no curtain call either, which I also thought was weird. So anyway, so Sound of Music. Those are some of my thoughts on it. If you really want to hear more, maybe I'll do a podcast commentary on it. I, I That might appeal to about 10 of you. So. Um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But I'm looking forward to the next one, seeing what it is. We were already starting to speculate on what it possibly could be. Could, are they going to go back to another classic? Or are they going to try something a little modern? Maybe next time they might not... Uh, they might try to bank on a, an actual theater person in a starring role, or maybe it'll be an ensemble cast so they don't have to worry about it. Hell, get Neil Patrick Harris. I mean, if you really want to get someone who understands theater and who is a, a little bit of a draw and, and might have some kind of name, get him. I mean, he he at least has some chops. So, um, Or get Megan Hilty from, from Smash or uh, you know someone. So, I don't know. We'll see. We will see what happens.
In my last episode, episode 267, I talked about movie casting and the role of comic fandom when casting announcements are released and how we should not always freak out and cheer when the same actor is cast across multiple superhero or geek-related movies. No more celebrating uncreative choices, all right? And one of the examples in that episode I gave was the frequent cry for Jamie Alexander, Sif in the Thor movies, to play Wonder Woman. So that episode dropped on November 30th. Four days later, we got the announcement that uh, a Wonder Woman had been cast for the Man of Steel sequel, and her name is Gal Gadot. And comics fandom, once again, lets me down. <laughs> Not only comics fandom, but the reaction in general, by the very loud voices. Not the majority, just voices that are loud, proving once again why they aren't ever treated seriously, uh, you know, or why their opinions are ignored, because some of the things they said... Ugh. Well, guess what? I have a loud voice, too. So, let's break this down. The casting of actor Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman? I'm good. I am so okay with this choice for a variety of reasons, none of which, by the way, have to do with her looks. Most of it having to do with the casting of, of a more or less unknown, and I'll, I'll put that in quotes, because yes, she's absolutely known if you're a fan of Fast and Furious movies, and there are certainly a lot of fans of those movies. That doesn't always necessarily translate to the entirety of the masses, right? So let's say, if not an unknown, then another way to sort of describe her is she's not well-known, right? She's not a household name. She's definitely not an A or B or, hell, she's probably not even a C-list actress. In that aspect, it's it's what I wanted, and, and she's not Jamie Alexander, which is, I'm, I'm so good with that. Then we have, let's talk her heritage. Not American. Born in Israel, on the Mediterranean. You know who else was born near the Mediterranean? The legendary Amazons. That's right, in modern day, what they're, you know, I was looking it up, they said they were around um, what we know as is Turkey, Near, near the Black Sea, you know, close enough, right? Okay. Would it have been even more amazing if they actually cast a Greek actress? Sure. But I'm still good. I'm still good with that part of it. And then let's talk about her accent. I don't know if you've actually heard the way she speaks. If you've never seen those movies or seen interviews, they better damn well keep her accent. I love that she has uh, that, you know, that, that region... Uh, that accent, you know, because it, it just adds the uh, authenticity to having an Amazon, if that's what they're going to go with, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, having an accent, having a, something different. I mean, Kal-El's mom had it in the movie, and Feora had an accent in the movie. Uh, the actress that played Feora, she's German. So, this is great. These are all great things for me. She's not American. Boom. Bam. Awesome. She's not an A-list repeat actor. Great. She has an accent. These are all things I can get behind. So, if you really want to talk about looks, let's do that. Because I can talk about looks. I had to laugh when people were talking about her physicality and, and, and her looks. And, and especially in light of if they would, if they would compare her to Linda Carter. I, I really had to laugh about that. You know, look, Linda Carter, yes, 
absolutely, she is and always will be Wonder Woman, you know. But if they can dare to replace Christopher Reeve as, from, as Superman, if they can dare to replace Michael Keaton or Christian Bale, if they can if they can cast Bruce Banner three friggin' times, we can get someone else in a Wonder Woman mold, right? We can get some new kind of look. Here's the thing, though. For my money, I think she's very much in the Linda Carter vein myself. Put put two of their pictures side by side and see if you're... It's, it's really kind of strange. Anyway, to those questioning her physicality, the first question I have to ask is, have you seen a movie... Any movie? Have you? Or, or here's another question: Have you never seen actors in more than one movie? Do they always look alike? Come on, don't be stupid. This is why I hold the value of opinions in such low regard for some people because you have all this evidence in front of you across hundreds of movies, across thousands of actors, and yet these same boring conversations are occurring. Of course they're going to prep her to fit the character physically. Stop whining. I did a little research. Thankfully, Twitter wasn't around when Linda Carter was actually cast to play Wonder Woman. Because look at the look at these stats. All right. I'll base them off of some of the comments I, 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 was, I did actually read. So, first of all, I saw a few of them that said Gal Gadot was too young to be Wonder Woman. She's 28. She was born in 1985. She's 28. She'll be 30 by the time the movie comes out. Linda Carter was born in 1951. She was 24, 25 when she became Wonder Woman. Too young? What? What? I don't get that. I don't get too young. What? Do you want Wonder Woman to be 40, 50? I mean, so, okay. So, I don't, there's that. Then you, uh, then I read uh, comments of she wasn't tall enough. Okay. She's listed as 5'9 in many places. She's also listed as 5'8 as well. 5'8, 5'8 But most places she's listed as 5'9. Linda Carter's height is also listed as 5'9. In fact, that's what she says, although in some instances they say that she is 5'8 and 5 or 5'8 and a half. So not tall enough. I okay, but yet you want to say Linda Carter's a perfect woman, Wonder Woman, you know, there's a little inconsistency in your argument there. There's also inconsistency if you think Jamie Alexander should play Wonder Woman because she's shorter. She's 5'8". And the actress that played Wonder Woman in that uh, Rainfall fan film, uh, her name is Relaya Vanderbilt, she's only 5'7". Inconsistencies in your arguments never do you well. So yes, Gal Gadot is tall enough to play Wonder Woman. All right, and then lastly, compared to Linda Carter anyway, she's not physical enough, right? All right, so let's take a look at this. In some instances, they have Gal's weight at 110, 120. Linda Carter, they have between 122 to 130. Bust size, she's a 34. Linda Carter was a 38. Bust, uh, waist size, Gal is 24. Waist size, Linda Carter, 25. Hips, they're both 35. Again, if you don't think an actor can't bulk up for a role in any aspect, especially someone who... Yes, maybe she is slight in her physicality, but maybe that's also good because she can do more with her body. She can probably pack on more weight. All she got to do is start eating, start eating, working out. Done. Stop being moronic in your physicality arguments, people. All right, what other comparisons from Loudmouths can I debunk? All right, this one was very interesting. Gal Gadot hasn't acted enough. I tell you what, 
the the more I see of the DC women kicking ass Twitter and Tumblr account, the more that I I really just want to shoot myself in the foot because I think it'd be less painful than actually reading what they write sometimes. So Gal isn't experienced enough. Oh, she's in Fast and Furious movies that takes a lot of action, which uh, from what I read, she's doing a lot of her own stunts. She's been in sports training. She's been in the military. The, she knows weapons. She owns, uh, she, she, she loves to ride bikes. I mean, this, not, not just regular bikes. I mean, motorcycle bikes. So let's, let's compare her to Linda Carter again. So in 1972, at around 19 or 20, Linda Carter entered a beauty contest in Arizona, which she won and then went on to do Miss World representing Arizona, uh, in the 1972 Miss World pageant. She didn't, she reached the semifinals, but that's about it. And then she went on to do some modeling, and then she went on to do some TV. All right, Gal Gadot. At the age of 19, she attended and won the 2004 Miss Israel competition, and then she traveled and went on to go on to the Miss Universe pageant, which, although she didn't place, she did basically the same thing. After that, she modeled and then went into movies. I have to argue that, you know what, Gal Gadot has more movie training under her belt than Linda Carter had TV training when she landed the role of Wonder Woman. Again, inconsistent arguments. If you're going to say things like that, you you got to back this crap up. <sighs> so who is a more experienced actor in, according to DC Women Kicking Ass? Jamie Alexander. Yawn. Why? Just because she was in, she was Sif in the Thor movies. Again, that whole thing. Oh, she played a warrior barbarian god in one movie. So, yeah. So she, let's make her play another warrior goddess in another. It's so boring. It's so boring. And then the other actor that they want is Carrie Washington from Scandal. So she's freaking out because she thinks Gal Gadot isn't experienced enough. There's talk about the potential risk of having Wonder Woman in this movie and and not wanting it to tank because that might hurt the chances of a Wonder Woman feature film. You want all of that, and your go-to choice is Carrie Washington? Not to mention this whole other aspect of if you can't have a white act actor playing a role, then the default should be a black actor? There are other colors in the rainbow, people. And as a Puerto Rican, not everything has to go default to an African-American or a black actor. That's like, I don't get the mentality some white people have with that. That almost feels borderline like sympathy card playing there. You know, stop giving it to white actors, give it to black actors. What, what about a Greek actress? What about, as Gal Gadot is, what about an Israeli? What about a South American? What about a Japanese? What about an Asian actress? or actor. That whole thing just weirds me out as well. So she's freaking out because she thinks Gal's not experienced enough. Some geeks are freaking out because they think Gal isn't Linda Carter enough. And then the other subhuman subset is freaking out because her tits aren't big enough. I got someone here who has something to say to all you fine people. Penn, take it away. You need to shut the fuck up. All right, another note here, because I've seen a couple of interviews on YouTube, because come on, how hard is it to do research on these actors with YouTube nowadays? Just go look it up, punch up her name, and there's like a hundred interviews you can go look at. So there really is no excuse to not know what this actress is about or what they, you know, how they present themselves. And I got to say, 
Gal is very aware of the way women are being represented in movies, and she's also very aware of how she's represented in her own movies and with her own characters. You know, she throws around uh, respect a lot. She, she talks about empowerment. And now she's cast as Wonder Woman. And I have to imagine, you know what? I think she gets the importance of this role. So anyone who's thinking that she's just some kind of frivolous model or some kind of twink, you're really doing her a disservice, and you're really kind of showcasing your own ignorance in this whole conversation. Yes, absolutely. Something could mess up in the script, in, in the rehearsal process, in the filming process. There could be conflict. Uh, you know, maybe she, maybe she won't like the way Wonder Woman is represented. Maybe she'll pull out. I absolutely do not discount the possibility of any of that happening. But should we actually wind up with Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman in that last, in that movie, and we start seeing the trailers, I'm good. Then when the movie hits, then we can talk about her performance. Then we can talk about the way Warner Brothers handles Wonder Woman. But on just the casting announcement, I am okay with everything I've seen before. Could there have been someone else? Of course. Could have been. Could there have been a safer choice? Could there have been a totally out-of-the-box, truly crazy choice? Absolutely. We have Gal Gadot. I am okay. Now, final thought. And this might flip some of you out. So she's an Israeli actress. You know who else is an Israeli actress in the movie? The actress that played Kal-El's mom, Ayelet Zurer those little fears that some people had that maybe... Well, first of all, I read somewhere some speculation that they thought, oh, oh wow, what if it's Wonder Woman that popped out of the Kryptonian ship that Kal-El found, you know, centuries ago or whatever, and not Supergirl, but actually Wonder Woman, and they make her Kryptonian. So well, let's take that a step further. What if it's not necessarily Wonder Woman that stepped out of there, but an ancestor, a Kryptonian ancestor, that went on to found the Amazons, that went on to, you know, part of, so that the Amazons have Kryptonian blood in them. That, I could see them doing that. I really could. And I don't, that's kind of, okay, I'm with you on that. It, that's kind of irksome. That's kind of like, oh God, I hope not. I could see them doing that. Anyway, the point being, it was interesting that there's two Israeli actresses, uh, you know, revolving around these movies, and it made me go, oh, 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 wait a minute, oh, oh boy, I hope they don't do that. So we'll just have to see. You know, I don't know. Is it any really any different than Marvel making all their future superheroes Inhumans? I don't know. You know, whatever. Kryptonians are the in thing, I guess. Either way, we have to wait to see. It's an important character. If they mess it up, I will certainly say that they are starting to mess it up, but I can't imagine that they're going to do anything too drastic. But flat out, just simple, just one point, the, the whole thing that this past 10 minutes, the casting, I am totally okay with, and you should be too, because we need to get behind more casting like this than any kind of other boring, uninteresting casting. Finally, I wanted to throw in uh, some actual comics talk in this episode, and as I travel down the road to Infinity, Jonathan Hickman's Infinity and Marvel's event, uh, I saw on Twitter James Kaplan in Boston. He sent a message to me, and he said he enjoyed the last episode, and he asks, did you ever end up going back and doing all the reading to prep for Infinity? 
And James, the answer is yes, I did start that. I talked a little, I think I talked a little, I may not have read the annuals at that point when I recorded that last episode. But anyway, I read the Thanos Final Threat collection that Marvel put out. It was a collection of Avengers Annual 7 and Marvel 2-in-1 Annual 2 by Jim Starlin. And although there is certainly more uh, involving Thanos prior to those two stories in 1977, this is where I'm starting. And one of the reasons is because in Avengers Annual number 7, it's the first time that the gems are referred to collectively, and they're referred to collectively as the soul gems, not even the infinity gems yet. So that was interesting. That was that was kind of cool to know. And I thought, you know what, this is a good good place. You know, Jim Starlin's at the helm, and it's he's gonna he's gonna, you know, shepherd a lot of the Thanos story for the next two two decades or so. Reading these two stories, there's there's a lot that I have to imagine is gonna echo from from year to year and maybe even into the infinity event. I don't know, I haven't read it yet. So, concerning Avengers Annual 7, the whole thing revolves around Thanos trying to acquire the soul gems and also trying to earn the love of death because he's always trying to do things to win over the affections of the female personification of death in the Marvel Universe. And he's blowing up stars and, in essence, blowing up solar systems and the population of those solar systems to you know, give the souls over to death and hopefully win her favor. So that's basically what's going on. Of course, he's heading to Earth, and it involves the Avengers and Adam Warlock and Moondragon and Captain Marvel, and eventually in Marvel 2 and 1, it involves the Thing and Spider-Man. And what I found interesting, a couple nuggets here, little notes, is that this story takes place after the formation of the Illuminati. Now, certainly back in 1977, that wasn't a concept, but it was a concept, you know, that Bendis and company created later, and it was post-Cree-Scroll War. So this story takes place post-Cree-Scroll War. The only member of the Illuminati at this point in this story is Iron Man, and it doesn't necessarily play out. There, There isn't any dialogue that makes me think, oh, wow, cool, that, that, that would be totally wrapped up. If they knew that the Illuminati was around at this point, you know, that's perfect. But, you know, there's a, a few nods here and there. One of the things he says early on in the story, it's very grand. It's very comics, superhero comics of the 70s and 80s. He says, I've had this unexplainable feeling of danger, of forces at play about me. It's very big, very epic, right? You know, this this whole story, this whole concept, very epic. So I read the story with that in mind, with the whole idea that this was post-Illuminati, and I thought that was interesting. We get the origins of Thanos from Adam Warlock. Uh, talks about his exile from Titan, his home planet, meeting death after he was exiled from Titan, which will be interesting to compare to the Thanos origin miniseries that was just out not too long ago, which I think, I haven't read all of it, but I believe he meets death during that miniseries as a young adolescent. So we'll have to see. Um, it, also, it basically, Adam Warlock is catching the readers up on everything Thanos has done up to this point in 1977. Uh, you know, battling the Avengers, battling, uh, using the Cosmic Cube, etc., etc. Uh, so the Soul Gems are finally referred to. Uh, we talk, uh, Adam Warlock talks about how there's a trait in Thanos 
to seed his own destruction in his plans. And that's something that Jim Starlin would, would flesh out a lot, uh, certainly in Infinity Gauntlet and, and in some other instances. So we'll have to see if that's something that actually plays out in Hickman's Infinity, that Thanos is basically the, always the method of his own destruction. And then we had some other characters. We had Gamora. She pops up, obviously. Pip, Pip the Troll pops up. We had a great little cameo by StarCore, which is this floating uh, space station observing the sun in the Marvel Universe, and which I think was destroyed in, I want to say, Uncanny Avengers? I think. So I always liked StarCore. I always liked when that popped up. It was, it kind of reminds me of uh, Star Labs over in DC uh, and they would always pop it. I know it was in, um, I'm pretty sure it was in Operation Galactic Storm and some other places too. So I appreciate that. Uh, then we jumped to Marvel 2 and 1, you know, because when you're battling a cosmic entity like Thanos and when the Avengers are defeated, you call upon Thing and Spider-Man to help you out. Very strange. So, um, in this chapter, we get appearances by Lord Chaos and Master Order, who are two Marvel cosmic entities that also show up in the Infinity Gauntlet, and they have a lot to talk about in terms of moving their chess pieces around against death. You know, if death is using Thanos, then Lord Chaos and Master Order are using Adam Warlock, and they're using Thing and Spider-Man. In fact, in one little blurb, they said uh, they said something about creating the destiny of Peter Parker to become Spider-Man, you know, for this very moment. It was very strange. So Thing and Spider-Man help out, and they free the Avengers, and... There's this big battle with Thanos. It's very epic, very grand, very Jim Starlin-esque. And uh, eventually, uh, Thanos is defeated by Adam Warlock, and he's turned into a large statue of granite. And if you saw the New Avengers cover, I, th- I want to say issue 12, it was the Infinity Epilogue, which has Thanos on the cover, also in a statue of granite. It's kind of like everything went back full circle from this story way back in 1977, which I thought was really interesting. So there's that. Um, A funeral is held at the end of these stories for Adam Warlock and Gamora and Pip. And Captain Marvel is giving a little bit of a eulogy, and he says, this is the original Kree, Captain Marvel. He says, I only pray that when my time is at hand, I'll be able to pass as honorably as he And that's obviously some little Starlin foreshadowing because he would then go on to do the Marvel graphic novel number one, Death of Captain Marvel, which indeed does show the passing of uh, Captain Marvel, the original Kree Captain Marvel. Um, And then the story ends with Master Order and Lord Chaos talking again. And they say here, Thanos is destined to spend infinity trapped within that petrified form, lamenting the waste of his days and weeping for a love unfulfilled. The use of the word infinity is used a lot, not only in this story, even prior to the story. There was a warlock issue, warlock number nine from 1975. The story was called The Infinity Effect, and it featured Adam Warlock and the Magus or Magus, Um, Thanos, Gamora, Pip. So again, the word infinity, right? They could have said he's destined to spend eternity, he's destined to spend forever, but they use the word infinity. So I think 
the, the seeds of using this word, Starlin was very aware. And of course, we would get the Infinity Gauntlet and Infinity, Infinity War and Infinity Crusade, Infinity Watch, Infinity Abyss. <laughs> it goes on and on and on. So just like Crisis for DC, Infinity for Thanos and Marvel Cosmic is very, uh, very prevalent. Um, so that's where it ends. It ends with him encased in granite. And eventually, out of this, I think I'm going to go and read the Marvel graphic novel Death of Captain Marvel again. Um, and then I've managed to acquire uh, Thanos Quest from 1990, which is where Thanos uh, accumulates the Infinity Gems. In fact, I think that's where they're called the Infinity Gems for the first time. I also want to read Silver Surfer, When Jim Starlin Took Over, with issue 34, also from uh, early 1990 with Ron Lim, because that's where he resurrects Thanos from this granite statue, and everything comes into play from there. And then, of course, I'll read Infinity Gauntlet as well, and then we'll go from there. So I'll talk a little bit more as I, again, travel down this road to infinity, and I just think it was neat to make some of these little minor connections, and we'll see how they play out. All right, if you haven't checked the website, please do so because I posted some of my suggestions for the December previews for books mostly shipping in February. I also did the December Timeline Tuesday post with several anniversaries going on this month, several cool anniversaries. And I actually pulled out my old trivia game cards. I don't know if you, maybe some of you know about this. I created a comics trivia game based on around Trivial Pursuit. So there's actually a board. There's several boards, actually, um, where you have to go around and get pie pieces. And instead of history, it's called continuity, right? Instead of celebrities or something like that, it's called characters or creators. And I have a potpourri category called hypertime, et cetera, et cetera. I, I have over probably 4,000 questions at this point. Um, I have all these cards broken up into Marvel and DC, and I broke them out, and I was going through, and I'm selecting some here and there, and the reasons why I'm doing all this, uh, I'll keep to myself for now, and, and, you know, it'll be a little bit of a secret for another few weeks, but then, um, you know, by the end of the year, you'll see why I'm going through, uh, going through all this, but it's been fun, it's been fun kind of going through and picking out good questions and seeing which questions needed some revamping, but, uh, yeah, well, I'll tell you more about that later. You can reach me, Peter, at thedailyrios.com. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 268. Talk to you next time.